Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's go. Let's get to work. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using one of the chair Bibles... I believe that's on page 671, and if you don't have a Bible, you're visiting with us, you're new, checking out Christianity or this church, uh, you are welcome to keep that Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, as you're flipping there, let me just do a couple little um, administrative things. The first is that, uh, well, happy Reformation Day, October 31st. Yeah, how about it? Half of you get what I'm talking about. Um, Today... In, uh, in a little place we like to call Germany, which for those of you that went to public school is a country in Europe, um, in the year 1517, a cat by the name of Martin Luther, uh, who was a Catholic monk at that time, uh, began to do something really radical for the church at that time. He began to actually read this little thing we like to call the Bible. And he happened upon two books in particular, Galatians, and also more prominently Romans. And he says that Romans in his writings literally grabbed him, it seized him. And, uh, and he realized that the church at that time was completely missing the boat on how people were saved. They weren't justified or saved by works, but they were justified by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. And it sort of compelled him to get a little ornery. And so he, there was this uh, other cat by the name of Johann Tetzel, who was wandering around Germany at the time, collecting money for the building of the Roman uh, cathedral in Rome, uh, the Catholic cathedral, the uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And uh, Tetzel was collecting what they called indulgence, indulgences, which is what the Catholic Church was selling at the time. And uh, they, were, they were promising some sort of favor from God if you would give to the building uh, project of the Basilica in Rome. And so this dude named Tetzel was walking around Germany saying he had this little jingle for his little sales pitch. And he said, when, when a coin in the bowl doth ring, a soul from purgatory springs. And so he was teaching the people that, very falsely, by the way, that if you were to give to the church that you would, maybe your great aunt would be released from this false notion of purgatory. Anyway, that made Luther go crazy and pull out his hair, so he went back to his room that night. Maybe it took him more than one night, but he wrote 95 theses, which are 95 statements about what he thought was wrong with the church at that time. And then he nailed it to the chapel door at this place called Wittenberg, and it sparked this little thing. And that was on October 31st, 1517, and it sparked this crazy little thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation. So happy Reformation Day. All right, yeah. Much more important day in church history than you are making it out to be. But let me, let me tell you about this book. Um, every now and again, we like to give books away. Here is a book. It's called The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World. It is short. It's just over 100 pages. It is an excellent and very readable and fun, concise history of the, of the Protestant Reformation. It starts off with Luther, talks about Calvin, this Swiss dude who's got the coolest name in the history of reformers. His name is Zwingli, which is awesome. I just, Zwingli. And so it talks about them and it talks about the women that contributed to the Reformation. It is an excellent book. 
you would do well to read this book. It's called The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World by Stephen Nichols. I believe it's on our recommended reading list. If it's not, it will be there by tomorrow. And we're also going to sell this in our resource room when we get that up and running in a month or so. So the Reformation. Anybody want this? Sarah Nixon. She knew the deal. She raised her hand. Give it up for Sarah. No, don't raise her. Yeah, clap for Sarah Nixon. All right. Now, Sarah, you've got to read that book, and then you got to... You can keep it, but you know, share it with somebody and let them read it too. So um, a great book about the Reformation. Hey, uh, two more quick things. Reynolds mentioned our members meeting, and uh, that's going to be a real exciting and important time in the history of our church. It's really our first one that we, we've done, and it's really kind of a one another. It's not a business meeting. It's our one another member meeting, which we're going to get in the habit of doing once every two months, and we're really excited about that. And as I told you last week, uh, one of the most important things that we're going to do next Sunday is that we're going to have the opportunity to joyfully as a congregation affirm uh, another elder that is uh, coming to serve us. Reynolds and I have been really the only elders of the church for most of the history of the church the last five years. And uh, Don McKelvey, who many of you know, has uh, been here at Crosspoint for a, a couple years and has a tremendous amount of pastoral wisdom and love for Jesus and love for people. Don has, is no stranger to the gospel in Columbus. He started, he actually brought the ministry of Young Life to Columbus some 20 or 30 years ago. And then he has pastored several churches, most recently in West Virginia. And he and his family have moved back down here the last few years, have been a vital part of our church. And after uh, really um, months and months of praying and talking and just asking the Lord to lead us, Reynolds and I, as the elders, felt like the Lord was directing us, and Don felt confirmation that the Lord was wanting to add him to be one of our elders. And so he, he's a chaplain at St. Francis Hospital, and he will remain employed as a chaplain, but he will become a, a lay elder and part of Cross Point's uh, eldership to help give direction and guidance and shepherding to the church. And so as a congregation, we have uh, the, the great privilege to joyfully affirm him as an elder next Sunday night. So we announced that last week, telling you again. So uh, we want you to look forward to that. So, um, and do we have a picture of Don? Whoa, man, there he is. It's a good-looking dude right there. Last thing I want to do is you're, open, is you're uh, at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we, uh, as you know, we love the military here. In fact, that's how, how I got here. I was stationed at Fort Benning in uh, 1993. And I met Jennifer shortly thereafter, fell in love, got married. Then I went away to Fort Stewart. And when I got out of the Army, we decided to come back because Southern girls don't like to move to California. And, um, but we, she didn't have a passport. And I just, and, but um, we, love, we love the Army. We love our military men and women. And we have many of them here. God has been very kind to us to allow us to be a, a sort of haven for young military soldiers that are going through Fort Benning or are either just here for a short time or stationed here for a long time. And it's a particular honor for us to serve them. A young man that came through West Point or came through uh, Cross Point and was a graduate of West Point a couple years ago is a young guy by the name of John Boxstance. And uh, John is now currently serving in Iraq. He's with the 25th Infantry Division, which is headquartered in Hawaii, and there's a picture of John, and he was a vital part of Crosspoint while he was here. We got a letter from him, and he writes kind of in you know camouflage, uh, little little notepad here. This is what he writes: He says, "Crosspoint Tribe, I'm very excited to keep up to date with Crosspoint and your new church building while I'm here in Iraq. All thanks to your website and emails. 
The updates are an encouraging reminder of so many friends, loved ones, and memories back in the Columbus area. Crosspoint is still one of the warmest church families I have known, and I think back on it frequently. Life in Hawaii, which is where he was stationed, is stationed, was a blast for about a year before I deployed, and life in Iraq has been challenging but rewarding. I'm an XO, that's an executive officer for a striker company, and we are securing the Bajai oil refinery in northern Iraq. Please pray for the Bible study we lead for our company. Tonight, I just gave away one of my Bibles to an E5, that's a sergeant, who had never owned one or even knew how to find a verse before he joined us tonight. Wow. I am very blessed by some solid brothers here. I pray we can influence the company. Thanks for all your love and support. I look forward to returning to Crosspoint someday. I miss you and love you guys. Glory to God, Johnny Boxdance. Praise God. Hey, let's do this. We're, we're, um, you know, we, our podcast is up every Monday. I get word from a lot of guys that uh, they listen to our podcast when they're deployed. In fact, Bob Landig, I think, was listening to our podcast when he was in Iraq. I heard Amy Stefanetta. And we're actually doing a video now, too, that people can access from our website. And uh, who knows, maybe John might listen to this podcast or watch this video. So just as a sign of appreciation and love for these guys, how about we just give a round of applause to all our soldiers? Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yes. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord for our men and women in the armed forces. Well, let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. If you're here for the first time, we have started a series recently through Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthians, his first letter to them. And we're just working our way through it. We believe in preaching expositionally. That means working our way through the Bible and making the point of the passage the point of the message. That's what it means to preach expositionally. And we we hold that as a real high value here. It's not to say that every sermon is necessarily like that. Occasionally we'll handle topics, but a vast majority of what we do is preach through the Bible, and we're in 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to read the first nine verses. And uh, then I'll pray, and then we'll we'll work our way back through it. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand what he would say to us today through this text. Lord, thank you so much for the great privilege to gather. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for men like Luther in the past history of the church who 
fought and many of them died a martyr's death to, to bring this scripture to us so that we as common people could read it. Lord, we are, we are very mindful of the fact that we're distracted, arrogant, prideful people who, who get whatever we want. And Lord, the scripture comes to humble us and to show us that actually you are the God of the universe, not us. And so as we read these words today and as we talk about spiritual growth and as we dwell about the things that might hinder our growth and as we consider the great, the great things that are riding on our growth and our health as a church, I pray, Lord, that again you would humble us and that you would give us a radical God-centered view of life in Christ. I pray, Lord, for people that are in this room that are already Christians. I pray, as I always do, that you would stir our affections for Jesus, that this would not just be some rote, traditional Sunday morning gathering, that we're not just trying to get through a sermon here, we're not watching our clocks, we don't, we're, not, we're not trying to get through a religious event. But I pray, God, for the Christians that are in this room that you would stir our affections for our great God and King. And Lord, for those in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, and certainly there are some, I pray, God, that you would cause them to see and savor Jesus, that you would cause them to repent of their sin and believe and trust in what Jesus did on the cross alone as a sole sacrifice and substitute for their sin and the only way that they could be made right with you. Lord, what rests on these words, my feeble words, is the eternity of souls. And so, God, I pray that you would Please yourself and give great glory to yourself through these words. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're talking about today is spiritual growth. And really what Paul is doing as he starts off this letter, remember in the first couple of chapters he's writing to correct the carnality and the selfishness and the divisions and the factions that are developing in the Corinthian church who were a very gifted people but were very self-absorbed and, and a very contentious group. He's now writing to correct their, their self-absorption and selfishness and get them back on track doctrinally and in their heart for one another. And now he begins to, in chapter 3, talk about the, the, really the necessity of spiritual growth and how what's riding on them being healthy and their growth What's writing on that literally is the advance of the gospel, which we'll get to at the end of the message. And so before I begin, let me just ask a question that I want to kind of be in the back of your mind as we're, as we're working through this text is, is, number one, are you growing in the Lord if you're a Christian? And if you're sort of stuck in a rut, what is keeping you there? Look, we're going to dwell on some things today, and don't be limited by the things that maybe I touch upon or Paul touches upon as reasons for stunted growth. What keeps you from being the person that God has called you? And in fact, as Romans 8, verse 29, I think, in fact, predestined you to be according to the image of His Son. Imagine with me if, uh, in fact, none of you would do this, but imagine if how silly it would be for us to go into the nursery. I think it's the brown room. It's the one furthest down there. It's the youngest nursery that we have. I think we have babies that are in there from six weeks to 18 months, I think it is. And so imagine if one of us went in there 
and a bunch of babies were writhing around in their cribs with diapers full and screaming and hollering, uh, wanting a bottle. And we walked in there and we said to a little baby, we leaned over a crib and said, can't you just grow up? (laughs) Well, if somebody did that, we would tackle you and beat you and take you outside and say, stop being such a punk to our babies. But what's going that's a little harsh, but maybe we should do that. But what's going on here is that Paul is metaphorically walking into this church and he's seeing a bunch of grown men and women with metaphorical diapers on, with sucking on their thumbs, whining. And he's saying to them, stop acting like babies. Stop acting like babies. And so what we're going to look, there's kind of a hidden little outline in Paul's nine verses here. We're going to look first at the problem of stunted growth, what it was. And we're going to look at the symptoms of stunted growth. And then we're going to look at the cure for stunted growth. And so let's go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now, this is really kind of interesting here that Paul would call them brothers. If you, if you notice in chapter 2 and chapter 1 at the beginning, he makes this distinction between people that are of the Spirit. In fact, this is what we talked about last week. People that are of the Spirit and then the natural man. You need to know this, that there are really only two types of people in the world. There are those that are born again and then those that are not. There are people that are Christians and people that are not Christians. Now, there may be non-Christians that are in process, that are being wooed by the sovereign grace of God. And they're, they're maybe on the brink of becoming Christians. But, but you can divide the whole world into people that are spiritual, that God has regenerated, that he has given his spirit to, which are Christians. And then everybody else who is, Paul would refer to them as natural man. We might call them unregenerate, not born again, not believers in Jesus. And you just need to, we need to remember that distinction. Everybody is either one of those two things. Everybody in this room is either regenerate, born again, spiritual. God has given you a new heart. As the last line of chapter 2 says, you have the mind of Christ. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you don't sin. But it means that you have been given a new heart and that your destiny is secure in Christ. Or people that are natural. But Paul here, as he begins chapter 3, addresses them. He, he kind of like makes a, almost a third category of sorts, which doesn't really exist. But it's like Paul is confused. And he says, but I, brothers, he calls them brothers. So I think he's acknowledging that they probably are Christians, or at least he thinks they're Christians. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. In other words, I couldn't address you as Christians but as people of the flesh, in other words, natural people. So what we've got here is we have some people who are at least professing to be Christians, who Paul thinks maybe there's some evidence that they're Christians, but they are by their actions and by their lives, their testimony is not lining up with their confession. And so the problem here in this church, and oh, by the way, it is a problem in our church and every church, is stunted growth, immature Christians, people who have a a profession of faith, but a life that does not match that profession of faith. And I think every Christian at various times in their life needs to feel this tension and probably fits into this category. And Paul sets his sights on this type of person. So he says uh, to them, 
Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The problem in the Corinthian church and one of the greatest problems in the American church is the immaturity of people who claim to be Christians. And he goes on now in verse 2. And now we're going to see the symptoms. There are three symptoms of stunted growth. And we'll have these three quick symptoms on the screen that you can write down. And by the way, all of the notes will be on the Internet when we put the audio up on Monday. But he talks about three symptoms. Look, look at verse 2. He says, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. First symptom that I think Paul mentions that is a symptom of stunted growth is that these people were not ready for the solid food of God's Word. They had an inability to feed. And so as you're sort of examining your own soul, let me just ask you, are you, is it hard for you to get into the Word of God? Is it hard for you to take it in? Is it hard? Is it, is it distracting? We live in a culture where we feed on virtually everything but the Word of God. Uh, I have a kid. He shall remain nameless. His name starts with a J. He's my second son. Um, and this kid has what we would call a sweet tooth. When I pick him up from school, I've gotten into this bad habit. And I'm a bit of a pushover. Like, I, <laughs> I admit that. I'm kind of the, I'm the wimpy parent. But um, when it comes to, like, everything, and then I, like, bring the hammer at the end, which is not a real consistent way to do it. But anyway, learn from my, my mistake. I repent of that bad example. Um, and, but I got into this habit where I would occasionally get him candy bars going home from school because, not just because he has a sweet tooth, but because maybe he got it honestly. I don't know. And um, I mean, this kid will eat every manner of junk, but man, when it comes to vegetables or solid food, I mean, you'd think you were, you'd think you were pulling his teeth out. And Paul is writing to these people and he's saying, you're not able to take, look, you should you should be beyond the little Christmas devotional that you buy at Lifeway. You should be beyond that by now because you've been a Christian for 10 or 15 years and you're still nibbling on milk. One of the first signs of stunted growth and spiritual immaturity is a lack of love and eagerness for the Word of God. Now listen, I'm not here to beat you up or... You know, throw some Bible reading plan at you and guilt you into something. And, oh, by the way, we'll, you know, we'll kick it off in January. We'll have some Bible reading plans if that works for your personality. Maybe it doesn't work for your personality. I don't know. But just as an as a examination, a check of your own soul, the Word of God, the difficult truths of the Word of God, things like the sovereignty of God and salvation, things like the like the like the providence of God over evil. How does your soul react to that? Does it back you up and make you not want to think about it? And you just want a little you want a little cherry pick verse out of a out of a devotional so that you can have your promise for the day? Or do you dig into the deep parts of the Bible? And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that you guys have been Christians. In fact, he goes on there at the end of chapter or verse two. He says, and even now you are not ready. So he's not saying, hey, you just became a Christian and I'm trying to like shove a stake down your throat, which would be inappropriate. He's saying you've been a Christian for a while. I went to Ephesus and now I've come back a couple years later and I'm writing a letter back to you and you're still just cherry picking a little verse out of some men or women devotional that you bought at Lifeway. 
They, they didn't have life way back then, but you understand what I'm saying. And so the first symptom of stunted growth is an inability to feed. And let me just ask, I just have to ask myself, what are we taking in? Listen, we, we digest absolute junk, and we allow our children to digest absolute junk. We watch shows, I mean, some, let's, let's be honest. Some of us in this room are more familiar with the plot of Lost or 24. You're for, some of you are more familiar with the characters of Glee than you are the characters of the Bible. And if that's hitting you right now, uh, just a, a little deposit on the end of the sermon, if that's hitting you right now, you need to repent and you need to humble yourself before God, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. And so the first a symptom of stunted growth is an inability to feed. Let's keep going in, uh, chap- in verse 3. He says at the end of verse 2, you are not even ready yet. And then in verse 3 he says, For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And so if the first thing that he says is, look, you couldn't eat steak after you had already grown in your molars and your, you know, your teeth. You should be doing more than just feeding on a baby bottle now. You can't take steak. You have an inability to feed. Then the second thing that he says is that you're, you're jealous. You're, you're full of strife and, and self-absorption. And so that's the second symptom that, that Paul hits on here. The first one's inability to feed. Then Paul mentions jealousy, strife, and self-absorption. Um, we live in a culture where most of us in this room, not all of us, granted, but most of us in this room have the means to basically get whatever we want to get. Now, I'm not saying that you can go buy a second house or a boat or a motorcycle, but if you want it, you can get it, most of us. And do we realize what that produces in us? Just kind of a self-absorption. We live in a country that is built on capitalism and marketing to the consumer. And that just sort of, we are like frogs that are in a pot of lukewarm water. That then if you, and I don't even know if this is true, but have you heard, I'm certain, it's kind of maybe one of those urban myths that if you put a frog, if you boil it in hot water, the frog is too stupid to jump out. And you can just, like over the course of time, I'll get emails, I'm sure, Urban Mythbusters or whatever, snoops.com or whatever it is. But, but we're, like, we're kind of like that frog is that we just are grown, we, we were born into this pot of water that as we grow older, just the heat turns up and the marketing powers of the forces of this wicked, broken culture are pointed directly at your soul and it just teaches you to, to just to just want that bottle and to just whatever, whatever you want. And then you, you're forced to get an education and get a good job. Why? Get a good job so you can make money, so that you can give stuff away for the glory of God. No, so that you can get, so that you can get and get and get. And we just grow up in a culture of self-absorption. Man, if we want to go hunting, we go hunting. If we want a new toy, we buy it. Man, if you want to take Saturday off and let your wife stay at home with the kids and you want to go do your thing, you do it. If we want to just go down to, you know, wherever and hang out and just totally check out of life, we do it. Because we're Americans and we are the captains of our own soul. I've worked hard and this world owes me. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Paul is pointing his gun 
his gospel gun straight at the self-absorption and the jealousy and the strife of these people whose universe centers around their own belly button. Later on in the New Testament, Paul talks about these people whose God is their belly and they are driven by their cravings and their desire for stuff. And it's much like us today, let's be honest. We are selfish, self-absorbed, arrogant, seemingly autonomous Americans who do whatever we want, whenever we want, and we bristle at the notion that we would somehow be strapped down and less free than we desire to be. And Paul identifies this here, this jealousy, this, this covetousness, and the, the anger that so quickly comes when you don't get your way. He identifies it as a symptom of stunted growth. We are like that, are we not? One guy agrees with me. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Sila. So the first uh, symptom of stunted growth is an inability to feed on the truths of God, the word of God. The second is jealousy, strife, and self-absorption. And then he goes on here in verse 4. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So he's saying that there's, there's, like these, there's this divisive party spirit that is taking place in the church where somebody's saying, hey, I'm with this guy and I'm with this guy. And so what's happening, I think, is the third uh, symptom of, of stunted growth is a divisiveness and an insecurity. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily a problem in our church. I'm sure it's a problem in, in other churches. But the way it's playing out in the Corinthian church, the way it's manifesting itself, is not necessarily a problem here. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in here saying, hey, I'm with this guy or I'm with that guy. Or, I'm, I'm with the ushers and, you know, forget the tech team. Or, you know, I'm, 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 I work the, I work the, sco- I'm yellow room scooter nursery and, and the green nursery. I mean, I don't think, uh, in fact, fact it would be awesome if we had that kind of esprit de corps for our nurseries. But I don't think that's going on in our church. But what I think the underlying thing that's happening in the Corinthian church also happens with us is these people are using the leadership of Paul, or in the other case, Apollos, as a platform to make much of themselves. It's, it's this divisiveness that comes with insecurity. In other words, they're using the gospel. They're using their community in the church to, to really puff themselves up rather than the Lord. And although we don't necessarily have a problem of it manifesting itself of people following different personalities in this church, I think that it does rear its ugly head in our church and in church culture all in America where people use church and the gospel and spiritual growth as just basically a means of making much of yourself. And so we come and we want to be accepted. When you come in the room, let me tell you, if you are a visitor here and you were not greeted, I, I apologize to you. I hope that it was a lovely atmosphere. But occasionally I'll read things or I'll get an email from, from, from somebody that will say, hey, I came to this church and it was so awesome. I just felt it, it kind of the underlying tone was it, boy, it just made me so comfortable. Or occasionally somebody will come to the church for a little while and they'll be attracted to whatever, just the style, the gospel, the, the message, the music or whatever. They'll, they'll link in and then six months or so will go by and I'll see them kind of step back 
I'll say, hey, what's going on? They say, hey, you know, I'm not really connecting. doesn't seem like there's anything for me. And the deal is, is that most Americans, like I said before, just grow up in this culture of me-centeredness. And when we bring that to the gospel and to the message of the scriptures, it is absolutely counterintuitive to what the message of the gospel is, which is that God sent Christ to die for you so that you would be enabled to make much of him. But the underlying false notion of most church culture, many church cultures, and maybe even our faulty understanding is, is that God is here to make much of you. And that is not the case. He gives you joy and satisfaction by enabling you to make much of Him. And so if you're here and you're, you're insecure because this little group of friends doesn't accept you or you didn't get this or you didn't get that or whatever, do you realize that you are, you are stunting your growth by making yourself an idol? And boy, that is pervasive in American Christianity. And I don't really blame primarily people. I blame insecure pastors who just want a bunch of people to come. And so they come and they they tickle people's ears, as Paul writes to Timothy, and tell them what they want to hear and make everything about the person and and just make it all about you. And, you know, God forbid we offend anybody with the message of the cross. We are broken, selfish, rebellious sinners, and we need to be confronted. I mean, you know, I'm not advocating that we, like, slap you right when you walk in the door. Or intentionally try and make it bad for you. <laughs> I'm not saying, I mean, you know, it's just common decency. We're going to love you, hand you a bulletin, and show you where the bathrooms are. But I mean, if you, like, what we're doing here is not about us. The best thing you can do for your soul, Will alluded to it when he received the offering, is to get your eyes off yourself. There are a million applications to this. And I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would be putting his finger on something in your life that you realize you are being a self-absorbed narcissist. And listen, this applies to me. I'm not the guy who has arrived. Sunday afternoons at my house are rough. Why? Because of my idolatry that still lurks in my heart. I sulk and moan and wonder how I did as if this gathering of the people of God has anything to do with my sermon performance. But I have to fight that idol because it rears its ugly head. And when I allow myself to slip into that, what I am doing is I'm shrinking the gospel into a prop that makes me feel good about myself. How do you do that in your life? How have you shrunk the glory of God and the cross of Christ and the message of grace for the reconciliation of sinners so that they would receive joy and God would receive glory? How have you taken that message, the only message that really matters, and how have you crinkled it up like a little ball of foil and stuffed it inside your belly button so that you might be made much of? How have you done that in your life? How does it work out in your life? Well, Paul writes in and continues in verse 5. So we've looked at the problem, which is stunted growth. We've looked at the symptoms, which are an inability to feed, jealousy, strife, self-absorption, divisiveness, and insecurity. Now we look, we look at what I believe Paul hints at as the cure. Now, sometimes Paul will say things just explicitly. He'll just lay it out. And then sometimes... 
just because of the language of and his, his God-centeredness is just implied in the text and it's implied in the letter that he's writing. And so I believe the cure that we'll see for our symptoms of stunted growth are, are implied in what Paul says next in the next few verses, verses 5 through 9. He goes on and he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Merely, these are rhetorical questions. They're merely servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So listen to this now, verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I believe that the cure that Paul implicitly implies here, implicitly implies, I think that's redundant, but you get the point. What Paul is implying here is that the cure for self-centeredness and stunted growth is a pride-smashing God-centeredness in all things. A pride-smashing God-centeredness in all things. He, he flatly admits, he says, me and Paulus, we're nothing. In fact, he says there in verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. So he who seems to be in some sort of position of prominence in the local church is anything. He's nothing. The popular cat who's got the small group that everybody wants to go to, he's nothing. The guy who leads worship who has a good voice, he's nothing. The elders, they're nothing. In fact, we're going to read here in a couple weeks in chapter 4 where he talks about the apostles and he says that they are the scum of the earth. We are nothing. Church culture that we build to make much of ourselves needs to be smashed with radical God-centeredness. We are nothing. And that is so counterintuitive to the American mind because we want to be made much of. Oh, Jesus, tell me how great I am. Make much of me. Somebody notice me. Somebody welcome me. Somebody invite me to their party. Somebody do something. Somebody reach out to me. Somebody, somebody, somebody. And you've been here for a while. There's more. Somebody do something for me. And the cure for that is a radical, pride-smashing, God-centeredness. And it's in that counterintuitive gospel message that we actually find joy. Here's the great scandal of the gospel, friends. It's not that Christ came to be made much of and you'll bow down and it'll hurt. That's not the message of the gospel. The great scandal of God's glory is that He calls you into into self-crucifying God-glory, God-centeredness. And that... That is where true joy and satisfaction is found. Not in you being made much of, but in you making much of God. And we as a church, blissfully, blissfully pursuing less of us and more of God. When you do that as a church and when you do that as a husband and wife, when you do that as a young husband or a young mother or a church member, some aroma of Christ grabs hold of a people, and joy is found there. True happiness and satisfaction is found when you give your life away, when it's less about you. Because here's the deal about selfishness and self-absorption and making yourself the center of all things. When does it stop? When is enough enough? 
When, when that flesh is never satisfied, man. Flesh is never satisfied. That's why, young man, when you, when you, when you just dabble in some area of, of sexual brokenness, it never seems, for a moment it seems like it works, and then you, you want more and more and more. That's why when you, when you want adulation or credit from somebody, and then you get it, then it, like it, it whets your thirst for more and more and more, and, and the flesh never satisfies. It never satisfies. Sin never comes through. It lies every time. Self-centeredness always, always leaves us wanting more. But the gospel and the pride-smashing message of God-centeredness and the joy that comes from anonymity and the glory of Christ always satisfies. And there are a million applications that spring from that. And I just trust that the Holy Spirit right now has given you wisdom, giving me wisdom in the areas where we want to make much of ourselves. We're idols. We're, we're little idolatry factors. In fact, John Calvin, being that today is the, uh, the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. And we are often the biggest idol, ourselves. So I end with this. How do you get to this? How do you get to this pride-smashing, radical God-centeredness? Well, the way you get to it is by uh, really understanding the gospel. Really understanding the gospel. Um, let me give you an analogy. I was talking to a young guy a day or two ago, and this just popped in my mind. This is kind of a picture of the gospel. Think of your life as a tract of land, a, a parcel of land. Let's call it 100 acres. I, I just put Winnie, Winnie the Pooh in your mind. I'm sorry. Is that, is that the 100 acre farm? Let's call it 10 acres, okay? <laughs> Let's call it your, the, your, uh, the tract of your you are You are a 10 acre plot of land. And you're not a Christian, you're not saved. And you may have some nice trees on there. You may have some, you know, some decent-looking spots on there. But basically, your life is unsaved. You don't know Jesus. And your life is just undergoing this whole bunch of katsu and undergrowth and all that stuff in your life. You know, just, just wild boars and coyotes and rattlesnakes and all sorts of stuff. Just running around wild in your ten acres. And here's what the gospel is, friends. The gospel is that Christ looks down on you. God the Father looks down on you and He purchases, He buys you. He purchases you. Not because you've got any good lump, you know, timber or you've got a good little area where He could build a campground. In His providence, in His sovereign grace, because of His will, not yours, because of grace alone, He gives you a new heart. He causes that heart to respond to Him in faith and repentance. And He purchases you with the blood of Christ. In fact, that's 1 Corinthians 6, 20. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Not by any merit, not by any good thing in that 10 acres, and you, he purchases you according to his sovereign grace. That's salvation. And when he purchases you, when he buys you, he gives you a new heart, and that heart responds in trust and faith and repentance, which is turning from self-reliance and trusting in Christ. 
And that, that's happened to many of you in this room. And you became a Christian. But now we're five years or ten years down the road. And look, you were purchased by Christ, but we're still like those carnal people where Paul says, look, you're my brother, but I can't even call you a brother because you're still, you're still not even growing at all. And so what's happened is there's been no growth. There's, nobody's cleared the underbrush. Nobody's cut any timber. Nobody's paved any way. Nobody's smoothed out any, any of the, the bumps and the, the little hills and valleys in your ten acres. And what the gospel does is the gospel, think of it this way, the gospel doesn't just save us. The gospel isn't just the news about how God purchases us in Christ through no merit of His own. But the gospel also grows us. All right, so let's, let's stop here for a second. The first thing is, is if you're gonna, if we're gonna catch hold of this God-centeredness, we have to understand that if you're a Christian, you're not a Christian because you're cute. You're not a Christian because you're smart. You're not a Christian because you grew up in Columbus, Georgia, or in the Bible Belt. You're a Christian. If, if you love God, it's because God loves you first. It's all of grace. There's nothing in you, so that should humble us. He purchased you because He purchased you. So step number one is utter humility. And then what happens is we kind of set it aside and say, okay, now I'm a Christian. Now I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a member of Crosspoint. I, 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 you know, I do my thing. But there's no conformity. There's no growth. And here's how the gospel grows us. Think of, this is the analogy that I came up with. This guy, think of the gospel as not only the news that saves us, but it's like this, gospel bush hog and the gospel just the gospel bush hog don't act like me like don't look at me like you don't know what a bush hog is you guys are from georgia you know what i'm talking about a big old super duper lawnmower they can chew up more than just grass and the the good news of the grace that the bush hog of god's glorious news of jesus sets down in the middle of your 10 acres and it begins to chew up that underbrush And so if you've been a Christian for six minutes or five years or 20 years, what you need is not self-help techniques or anger management or this, that, or the other, or moving on to other stuff. You need to again and again reapply the gospel to your life because the good news of Christ, the God-centeredness of the gospel, the pride-smashingness of the gospel, again and again applies to our life. The idol-smashing truth of God's gospel and the bush hog of God's grace gets applied to our hearts and it chews up the underbrush and it cuts away the kudzu and it levels levels little potholes and the gospel changes us and cleans us and grows us how because we remember humility we remember that everything is for god and we remember that true joy is in him and not in ourselves god did not save you so that you could make much of yourself or that the church could make much of you but he saved you and he put you together with a bunch of other saved formerly pardoned rebels so that together we could pursue making much of god which is where true joy is Martin Luther, in his 95 theses that he put on the chapel door at Wittenberg, said this in his first thesis. This was his first statement. He said that the whole of the Christian life begins and ends with repentance. So... 
Are you a Christian here today? Are you like me? And do you battle against making yourself an idol? Making much of yourself? Does it manifest itself with an inability to feed on the Word of God because you're feeding on your own flesh? Does it manifest itself with insecurities? Does it manifest itself with just a complete self-orientation? You do what you want, man. Just do what you want. Do whatever you want. You're not committed to anything. Just do whatever you want. Does it manifest itself by a thought life that is dominated with self? Well, then the answer for you is to repent of your self-absorption and to again let the gospel be reapplied to your heart and to again find the grace and the sanctifying, growing power of the gospel in your life. Are you not yet a believer? Are you wondering if your 10 acres of land is bought or not? If you are hearing my voice right now and you are understanding what I'm saying, that means that God is showing you His grace. Now you have a real decision to make to either receive or reject, to continue to make yourself the idol in the center of your your universe or to repent of your sin and self-idolatry and self-righteousness and to trust in what Christ did on the cross alone. Right now, if you are not a Christian and you've become aware of that even as I'm speaking, what you need to do right now is you need to turn from yourself, turn from your self-righteousness, turn from your works, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Do that even as I'm speaking right now. Trust in Jesus. And when you do that, that means that Christ has bought you. Do that right now. Christ has bought you. You say, oh, I've got a lot of sin in my life. Well, of course, we've all got a bunch of underbrush and kudzu still in our life. We still do. The the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not sin. It's repentance. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not sin, it is repentance. The Christian is taking God's side against their sin and growing in ever-increasing Christ-likeness, while the non-Christian is taking their sin side against God and coming up with excuses on how this God of the universe should not have a claim on their life. If you are realizing that right now, Repent, which means to take God's side against your sin. You still may be whack. But then do what the rest of us are going to do in this moment is over the course of your life, connect with a bunch of other people who love Jesus, who are taking the bush hog of the gospel of grace to their underbrush and grow in Christ-centeredness. Because here's what's on the line. What's on the line is the advance of the gospel. At the end in verse 9, Paul says, You are God's field. You are God's building. What are fields used for? To grow things so people can eat. What are buildings used for? To shelter us from storms. To give a place of refuge and dwelling. And so what Paul is saying is, is what's at stake here? Christian, you understanding this and being a person that grows and is God-centered and not self-centered. And what's at 
stake here, a person who doesn't know Jesus, what's at stake in you coming to Christ is God has a mission for you to be a place, to be a dwelling place collectively, as Ephesians says, so that God could dwell there and through us, through us, cause many other people to taste and see that the Lord is good. What could be more joyful taking vacation and buying more stuff and getting an iPad and some new gear, going online and blowing up your credit card so you can just make more of yourself or humbling yourself, centering yourself on God and being part of a field and a building that God uses to make much of Himself. Nothing is more satisfying than being on mission with God. And that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. Repent and believe the gospel. Christian, repent, believe, and reapply the gospel to your heart. Unbeliever, repent right now and trust in Jesus. And let the gospel purchase you for His glory. But Lord, as we now respond in song and in prayer, in communion for some of us, I pray that you would give us the sweet gift of self-forgetfulness. That you would cause us in this room to have our hearts burn within us for the glory of Christ. Lord, if there are Christians in this room who are caught up in petty jealousies, against one another, I pray that even today they would repent to one another and that they would cut the umbilical cord of their selfishness. Lord, if there's strife and jealousy and pettiness in this room amongst Christians, I pray today, God, that your Holy Spirit would sit on them heavy and that they would be brought to repentance and renewal of God-centeredness because what's at stake in the Christians in this room not being selfish and petty is the advance of the gospel. So God, would you do that today? Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not know Jesus, I pray that by a sovereign work of your good and gracious will that you would move upon their heart, that you would take their heart of stone, you'd give them a heart of flesh and that they would turn and trust and see Jesus. Not that they would trust on their own work, but they would see Jesus and that life is all of grace and that that is where true joy is found. Lord, would you be so kind to give us those things? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.